I want you, if you will, to turn with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11, Romans 11. As we continue to work our way through the book of Romans, we find ourselves in Romans chapter 11, verses 16 to 24, Romans 11, verses 16 to 24. Thus far, the Apostle Paul has been communicating through this portion of his letter that God has not forever abandoned His chosen people Israel. His current rejection of them is neither total nor final. Even though he acknowledges that the nation of Israel appears to be in wholesale rejection of her Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ is being rejected by them. There is nevertheless a believing remnant of Jews, Jews who have been redeemed by Christ through their faith in Him. And just as the Lord Himself kept 7,000 Israelites in Elijah's day from bowing the knee to the false god Baal, so too at the time of Paul's writing, God has chosen by His sheer grace a remnant of those persons within the nation of Israel who constitute true spiritual Israel. The difficulty among those who were reading Paul's letter, however, was a thorny question that continued to crop up in the discussion and the debate. And that question would be something along these lines. Doesn't it rather seem to be the case that God has forever set aside His chosen people, the Jews, in favor of the Gentile world? Isn't this the case? And... If you were to simply read what Paul says himself in Romans 9, 10, and 11, you might come to that conclusion. You might assume that this is precisely what Paul is advocating. For instance, look at several key statements from him. Look back at Romans chapter 9, verse 3. Romans 9, 3. Here's what Paul says very plainly. He says, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Implied, of course, that they are cut off from Christ. Look at chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. You read language like that and you do come to the place where you wonder, has God set aside his people? Has he cut them off? Romans chapter 10, verse 3. Paul says this, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, implied their own righteousness, they, the Israelites, did not submit 
to God's righteousness. Even though, Paul will go on to say in chapter 10, that the gospel has been clearly presented to them. Clearly. Notice what he says. He says in verse 14 of that chapter, Why haven't they called on Him whom they've not believed? That's the implied sense of that question. And he goes on to say that they have heard of the gospel preaching of Jesus Christ because there was a preacher or preachers sent to them and their feet are beautiful, these preachers who preach the good news of the gospel. But verse 16, look at it. They have not all obeyed the gospel. So much so that he says in verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? Verse 21 of Israel, God says through the prophet Isaiah, all day long, I've held out my hands to a disobedient and contrite people. Now, at just even a cursory reading of those verses, let alone reading yourself through the chapters 9 and 10 and now into chapter 11 up to verse 16, you're going to get an impression that says, God, have you indeed cut off your people if you're not careful, you could slip into a mindset that God has indeed actually cut off the whole of His chosen people and have incorporated His new choice, as it were, for a race of people, the Gentile world, the pagan world. Those, of course, who are hated by the Jews. This appears to be what is going on in the minds of some of the people to whom Paul is writing. Because of this disobedience of these Israelites, God is judging them and is now rejecting them in favor of the pagan world. It's as though He says, I gave you the opportunity. You did not respond to it, these Israelites. And so therefore now I am leaving you. I'm cutting you off. I'm judging you forever. You're no longer my people at all. I have totally and finally rejected you. And I'm now going to the Gentile world. And if you were a Gentile, which is what every non-Jew, of course, is, all of the races of mankind upon the earth that are not Jewish are therefore Gentile, non-Jews. Would you not yourself be tempted to think about yourself as though maybe you are superior now to the Jews? God has left them. God has now visited me. And if you were a Gentile convert to Christianity and you saw yourself as a part of the kingdom of God and you also saw the vast majority of what was supposed to be God's very own chosen race of ethnic Israelites being rejected, wouldn't you be potentially a prime candidate for spiritual pride and arrogance? Yes, of course. Of course you would. It would be especially this very case, wouldn't it, if you heard what Paul had written just prior to this passage, Romans 11, verses 16 to 24, namely, verses 11 and 14. 
Notice what he says, Romans 11, 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, listen to this, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And someone could say, yes, putting their thumbs behind their suspenders. Yes, I'm all about making the Jews jealous. Aren't I something special? Verse 14, in order, Paul says, somehow this mystery of God coming to the Gentiles is designed to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So if the Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom of God for the purpose of making the Jews jealous, and yet it appears as though in Paul's day the Jews aren't responding Uh, They aren't being provoked to jealousy, or so it seems. And if God is blessing the Gentile world, and this blessing that is supposed to go to the Jews as God's chosen race, if they're sort of spilling out all over the Gentiles, and Gentile people are coming to faith in Christ, they're repenting of their sins, they're placing their trust in Yahweh's Messiah, Jesus Himself, the Gentiles are blessed. And you know when you are blessed... You can fall into spiritual pride because you can see how blessed you are, how much is coming your way. And I think this is precisely why Paul pins verses 16 to 24 of Romans 11 to warn the Gentile converts in Rome of dangerous arrogance. And that's why I've entitled the message this morning, The Warning The warning of Gentile arrogance. The warning of Gentile arrogance. And I want you to notice three key facets from verses 16 to 24 about how Paul warns these believing Gentiles in the church at Rome of the dangers of spiritual arrogance. And what I want you to do this morning is that by the time we're finished, even if we transcend principially the idea of the Jew and Gentile question, I want you to be warned as well, and myself also, of the dangers, generally speaking, of spiritual arrogance. That's the point of this message this morning. Even if you don't clue in yourself to this Jew-Gentile interrelationship that Paul is teaching this particular church in Rome, I still want you to know as the Bible Church of Little Rock that this applies to us in principial form to tell us there is a danger, there is a warning for all of us ourselves not to be spiritually arrogant, even in the midst of great blessing. Let's talk about the first facet of this warning of spiritual arrogance. Let's call it the initial illustrations of Jewish-Gentile relationships. The initial illustrations of Jewish-Gentile relationships. Verse 16. Verse 16. Here's what Paul says. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. You say, what in the world does that mean? I'm glad you asked, class. 
so glad you asked, because I've been studying this week to try to find out myself the very answer to that question. Because it seems as though, at first glance, that it comes as a bolt out of the blue. He's talking here in verses 11 to 15 about the question, ultimately, is God finally through with His chosen people Israel? You remember I read that very question in verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Here's Paul's answer, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, using the singular, Israelites trespass, the whole of them, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And he says now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the world... And uh, excuse me, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Simply stated, if you think that through the Jews trespass that that is final, think again, because even though God has now gone to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous, if you think all of these riches, all of the splashing of the blessing over upon these Gentile nations is incredible, how incredible is it going to be when God ultimately does revisit His people and give them the rich inclusion of the whole of their redemption? What do you think that's going to mean? Verse 13, He says, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, Gentiles in the church, converted to Christ, and as much then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, yes, I've been called by God to come to you, I magnify, I lift up my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. He says, I realize I've been called by God as an apostle to the Gentiles, and I believe that one of the reasons that God has called me to you as Gentiles is so that I, as that apostle to the Gentiles, would magnify, lift up my ministry, complete the whole of it, be faithful to the very last drop of everything that I do as a drink offering, so that as I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles, the more of them that are saved, the more Israel will be provoked. And the more Israel will be provoked, the more Jews will be saved. You see his heart? So that God would save some of them. I know that God has put a partial hardening on the hearts of the vast majority of Jews, but I want God to so use me in my ministry to the Gentiles as one called to them that the blessing of God would spill out through so many of them that even some of the Jews, just a few of them, would see this magnified ministry to the Gentiles and be provoked to jealousy and then say, I want to get in on some of that. I want to be saved from the wrath to come. And while Paul is doing everything he can to be used as a human instrument to save as many Gentiles from the wrath to come as possible, he says even in the midst of that, I'm going to do everything I can do to try to make sure that a few Jews would come along as well. What a heart. And then he reiterates in verse 15, for if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, that's the Gentile world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Oh, this is phenomenal. If God is going to work a work of grace in the midst of the Gentile world, what about these Jews in the end when God visits them again and He brings them out of dead works, sinful works, and resurrects them to a new spiritual life? 
How much will their acceptance mean if you see what God's doing to the Gentiles? And then verse 16. If, if the dough, the bread dough, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And this is sort of like a, a transition verse from what he has just said to something that he wants now to say in verses 17 to 24. Verse 16, in some of your Bible translations, appears by the way the translators have set up the paragraphs, or at least the editors of your Bible, to be a part of the previous section, verses 11 to 15. And this, of course, could be the case. But it actually might be better to place it as a transition verse to the next section in order to make it come with the next paragraph and not end with the previous. You see, if you remember, Paul was referring to the fact that God's plan to include the Gentile world in his election of jealousy-induced incentives for the Jews to believe in their own Messiah, Jesus has indeed apparently provoked some. And as it has provoked some, he says, what about the whole lot of them? Isn't it going to be glorious when God does visit His people? It's going to be glorious. Here's this transition now. And if the dough offered as first first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. In other words, if there is a little bit of a seed... Or to use that bread analogy or that metaphor, if there's a little bit of this bread dough that God is working with now, and if He's going in His sovereign plan to save even some of them, a few of them right now, how about the whole lump of dough in the future? And if there's a root, the root of a tree, using a second metaphor, if there's a root of a tree that's holy, then so are the branches ultimately. And he uses these two illustrations, bread dough and a fruit tree, as spiritual metaphors, speaking first about a part of something and then the whole of that something. That's what he's driving toward here. And for instance, that first metaphor about the bread dough, it's drawn, I think, directly from Numbers chapter 15, verses 17 to 21. We don't have time to turn there. Let me just read it for you for the sake of time. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land to which I bring you, and when you eat the bread of the land, you shall present a contribution to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall present a loaf as a contribution. Like a contribution from the threshing floor, so shall you present it. Some of the first of your dough you shall give to the Lord as a contribution throughout your generations. That's Numbers 15. And what the Lord is commanding Moses to do was to instruct the Israelites to give back to the Lord the very first portion. That's why he calls it first fruits. The very first of their produce of the land. In other words, that's holy. The Lord says something like this. It's mine. It's a way for you to see that that first part needs to go back to me because I own it all and I want to see what you do with it and I want to see how you're going to honor me first and foremost. By the way, that's precisely why 
when we take the offering on the Lord's day, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we give out of the first of the week what God has blessed us with financially. We give Him the stuff off the top. We don't give Him the stuff at the end. We don't say, Lord, I've paid all my bills, everything is taken care of, all my needs are met, and you have what's left. No. We give to the Lord out of the first fruits. And that's the principle that Moses is being told by the Lord to instruct the people. Now, the question for us is, how does this particular metaphor convey spiritual truth to the Jews of Paul's day? What is his point? Well, the answer, I think, is how he uses the second metaphor as a parallel. The way he uses the parallel of the fruit tree. He says, if the root is holy, so are the branches. And so, whatever in parallel fashion the second one means, that metaphor, then that's probably what the first one means as well. You say, well, what does the metaphor mean? Well, First of all, the branches in verse 16 are the Jews. Look at it with me. Verse 16, the branches there that he lists are the Jews. Because verses 17 and 18 make this clear. The root, as most commentators take it, and I agree, is then a reference to the Jewish patriarchs. As Romans 9.5 implies. He says, God has not forgotten His people, even though they've had the glory, the adoption, all of those things, including out from among themselves, even the patriarchs. And the patriarchs were, as it were, the very root, humanly speaking, of what God was doing in fashioning a huge fruit tree. And the patriarchs are the root of that tree because they were the ones who had the very promises of God articulated directly to them. Like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Israel. Yes, they are the root. And this is also, I believe, what the initial dough is. The patriarchs. That's the dough. That's the first fruits. In other words, God hasn't forever rejected His people. Look, if you understand anything about spiritual metaphors, about bread dough, and about fruit trees, you understand this. God made a promise to the patriarchs. They become, as it were, the first fruits, the seeds of that bread that rises to a full loaf. And they are, as it were, the roots of that fruit tree as those seeds are planted in the ground. That, that green olive tree rises up and out of the fruit of, of those roots comes the blessing of the nation of Israel as God has promised it to her. That's what he's talking about. Founded by God, redeemed, saved, delivered. Even though they're in their Christ-rejecting state right now, God's not going to forever cast them aside. It is true right now, even from the time Paul wrote this up to our own day, when you look at the nation of Israel you don't see them worshiping their Messiah. You don't see them loving Jesus Christ. In fact, they are antithetical. They're antithetical to Christ. In fact, look at chapter 11, verse 28. He says, as regards the gospel, they, these Israelites, they are enemies of God for your sake. Isn't that interesting? How could God at one point say, the Jews are His chosen people and He loves them. 
and the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable and that God will never forever cast away His people. And then in verse 28 of chapter 11, right in the context of all of this, say they're actually enemies of the gospel. Who are the enemies of the gospel? The very ones in Paul's day, all the way up to our own day, who are Christ rejectors. It's those particular Jews, those individual Jews, which make up a vast majority of Israel who are rejecting Messiah and for which Paul can say on the authority of God's word, I tell you this, they are enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't love Christ. Now, just as I said in the introduction, you hear someone talking about the Jews as the enemies of the gospel of Christ, and it's inevitable. You're going to ask the question, well, then God's given up on them. Paul says, no, absolutely not. Go back to verse 7 of chapter 11. What then? See, he anticipates his own question. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. But here's the answer, folks. Here it is. The elect obtained it. The elect. You see, here's what God did. He took out of the mass of the Jewish nation, these Israelites, out of the mass of these sinful human beings, by sheer grace and mercy, He took a few of them in that mass of sinful, Christ-rejecting people, and He plucked those out whom He said are true spiritual Israel. To answer the question, has God rejected His people with a resounding no? Of course He hasn't. Because He's elected certain ones by grace. And they're the first fruits. They're the first fruits. They're Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and every true spiritual Israelite up to our own day from the very root of those like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, like those who are the root, there is a tree and it will blossom even though it's not seeming to blossom right now. That's his point. In other words, God's going to keep His promises. God's going to do what He said He's going to do. And He uses these marvelous spiritual metaphors. Do you realize that this idea of bread was the very sustenance of their life as they physically ingested that bread, that metaphor would be so vivid in their minds. And how about a green olive tree? That was the most vivid, the most plentiful, the most productive, the most luxuriant tree in Israel. And they would have known from those two illustrations what Paul is referring to. This little lump, it's going to grow into full bread. And this little seed, it's going to grow to a luxuriant green olive tree to the glory of God. That's his point. That's his point in using these initial illustrations. That's verse 16. So now he's transitioning into a new section. And this new section happens to be a response potentially on the part of some Gentiles who say, well, even though that's true, look at what's happening right now. They're still in their Christ-rejecting condition. And our Gentile brethren, 
are the ones who are receiving all the blessing. And so even if that's true in the future, right now, it's our party. We're lapping up all of the blessings of God's richness that was originally intended for God's chosen race, the Jews. And so we move in verses 17 to 22 to the important exhortations from the initial illustrations to the important exhortations to humility and awe. You know how to counteract arrogance and pride? Paul says, let me exhort you in the strongest warning possible, Gentile believers, to be humble and to be awestruck. Look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are implied, if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say. He's anticipating another objection. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I, emphasis on I, Greek word ego, emphasis on me, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. There's a whole lot of arrogance tied right to that phrase. I'm in the kingdom. I'm in. And it says a result of the branches being broken off. Paul's answer, that is true. That is true. In other words, that is true as far as it goes. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. Note. And whenever the Bible uses something like that, note. I think that's something we're supposed to take note of. When Jesus says, behold, or truly, truly, or when Paul says, do you not know? Or he says, note, something's important. Note, then, the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Well, this is a solemn word. This is a solemn warning. This is an exhortative warning. An important one. He gets right to the heart of the passage in these verses. And he acknowledges that even though it is the case that the Gentiles are being saved so as to provoke the Jews to jealousy, the Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ cannot become proud and arrogant of that fact. Look at what God is using us to do. They thought they were God's chosen people. And what God is doing is He switched from them to us. And look at what He's using us to do. You see, my friends, that can so easily lead to pride. To arrogance. Notice what he says in verse 17. But if some of the branches were broken off. That phrase, some of the branches were broken off. It's obviously a reference to the fact that Jews 
The Jews who were living in Paul's day had rejected the gospel of Christ and were rejected by God. That's, that's this constant theme running through here that he's been emphasizing over and over and over again in Romans 9 to 11. He says they, they've rejected, they've not obeyed the gospel because of their disobedience toward the gospel message. These Christ-rejecting Israelites have been judged by God and as a result they've been broken off from the olive tree. And the Gentiles are saying, boy, they sure have, haven't they? Oh, it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing these Jews have been broken off. But look at ourselves. We've been grafted in. And he's warning these Gentile readers of his letter. Although, yes, that's a fact. And although you as pagan people have been supernaturally grafted into the olive tree as a wild olive shoot, you can't be arrogant toward the remaining branches. And I believe he's specifically referring there to the remaining Jewish Christian branches. In other words, please don't thumb your nose at your Jewish brethren in the church who have believed in Christ, who are God's chosen people. Don't be arrogant to them, assuredly, first and foremost. Because haven't I told you before that the Gentile believers in Rome were the vast majority of them? And can you see in the church at Rome this vast majority of Gentiles for whom God's richest blessings are falling upon lavishly so? And then this small remnant, these very few believers are of Jews who are in the church and the Gentiles are dictating, maybe even arrogantly saying something like this, God has rejected you as a part of His plan, that is, you unbelieving Jews, and the few of you that God has graciously elected to salvation, you now look at what God is doing toward us. He says, don't be arrogant. Don't be arrogant. And by all means, even if He's including those branches that were broken off, and certainly that's the implication of the first part of that phrase, these Jews who have rejected Messiah, by all means, do not be arrogant yourself. Those are the very people you need to be trying to reach. Don't be arrogant toward them. They're not your enemies, even though they're enemies of the gospel of Christ. Your evangelistic duty, your love, like Paul in his heart, is that he wants to reach out to them. Don't you want to reach out to them too? Don't trumpet the idea that they've been rejected as God's people and then make yourself arrogant because God has visited you with His salvation blessing and then thump your nose at them? Don't do that. You see what he's driving toward here? And within the congregation, any congregation, certainly there in Rome, there was going to be a mixed congregation of both Jews and Gentiles who together as the one people of God should have been both humble and awestruck that God had chosen any of them. You see at the heart of this? Ethnic pride. Ethnic pride. Spiritual arrogance based upon where you think you've come from and what stock you are. He says, don't do it. Don't do it. Instead, 
of exhibiting a sense of superiority over each other, especially you as the wild olive shoots called the Gentile Christians, instead of arrogantly asserting that you've been grafted in to the olive tree as over against those who've been cut off like these unbelieving Jews or maybe even the remaining branches which are defined as the remnant branches of believing Jews who have not rejected but received Christ as Savior and Lord. You have no reason as a Gentile person to boast about what has happened in God's plan of redemption. There should be no air of superiority here whatsoever. All of us, whether we're Jews or non-Jews, or slip in here, here's the principle, or whatever financial condition you've come out of, the kind of clothes you wear, the kind of money you give, the kind of skin color you have, whatever are the current ethnic difficulties, challenges, arguments, spats, biases, loyalties. Don't be arrogant. We're all the people of God. doesn't matter what our skin color is. doesn't matter where you've come. All of us should be saying, I'm so thankful to God that He's chosen any of us. I'm so thankful to God that anybody's in this room, regardless of what color they have, I'm so thankful to God that any of us are in. Because at the foot of the cross, it's level. And at the foot of the cross, there is no color. There is no financial strata. There is no bias. Aren't you glad the Lord didn't say something like this? I save the rich and I condemn the poor. Or, I save the poor and the rich can care for themselves. Aren't you glad there are rich people who are saved? I'm glad you're saved so you can support me. Aren't you glad that God is doing a work in the human heart regardless of the color? Because frankly, the color of every human heart on the inside is dark regardless of the color on the outside. That's his point cannot boast about having been included in the citizenry of the kingdom of God as Gentiles who, he says, are in fact wild olives. You're a wild olive branch. What are you doing being arrogant? That's his point. Look, do you not understand that it's the root that supports you and you don't support the root? He says, if anything, you ought to be rejoicing in the gracious handiwork of God that there was a root in the first place and that root happened to be Jewish men called by God to be Jewish in the totality of what He commanded them to do and He created a whole race of people because there weren't any Jews even before that and there wasn't any circumcision before that. And what Abraham did was start a race of people in which the issue is faith, not Jewishness. Do you understand? It's the issue, not of Jewishness, but of faith. That's the root. And regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, the issue is the root which will produce the fruit, which are branches made up of both Jews and Gentiles. That's the point. 
Don't think for one minute that you're so arrogant and you're so proud that you think you make up the majority of the church and everybody else has to curry to your whims. I'm on the in crowd. You're on the out crowd. And boy, I'll tell you, in school with little children or even in adults with their own cliques, it can become quite difficult, can't it? Quite difficult to sort of move into the clique. Well, then sometimes you say, well, I I can't move into the clique. I don't dress like them. I don't look like them. I don't smell like them. So I'll go and start my own clique. And you do the same thing that you're mad at them about. And then there's a whole bunch of cliques. And the people who are wrong about this clique, well, I've made my own clique. No boys allowed. Right? Paul is all over this. He is all over this. And as this sensitive pastor, he's saying, don't be arrogant. Don't be proud. Pride and arrogance has no place in this. And you ought to understand this. Even though there's no pride of place, you understand as a Gentile, as a wild olive tree, you are being supported by the root. You're not the support of the root. Who, who, who left you with the sense that since the Gentiles are the majority and since God is blessing them with salvation by the thousands, that all of a sudden they're the big cheese? That's not true. Look at the latter part of verse 18. He says, if you are, that is arrogant, if you are arrogant toward your fellow branches, remember It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. He's saying, how can you be arrogant toward your fellow Jewish believers when the fact of the matter is the only reason you're even a part of the olive tree in the first place is owing to the fact that God has graciously, supernaturally allowed you to be a part of what He's planning for the Jewish root to produce. You know what you ought to be saying as a Gentile person? I'm so thankful to God for the Jews. Instead of saying, how odd for God to choose the Jews, you should say, I'm so thankful. Because if it weren't for God's salvation plan, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, I wouldn't even be here. That just takes away arrogance. takes away pride. And by the way, even if you didn't clue into that argument, you ought to say something like this. If this is all by grace anyway, then how can I be arrogant about anything? If it's all of grace, what does it matter what race of people I've come out of? Come on. You're only a part of the tree because God decided to do something with the Jewish root in the first place. Oh, but pride and arrogance is so much a part of the human makeup of man even in our regenerate condition, that based upon our ethnic background alone, to say nothing of so many other things in the social structures of the world, not just the color of skin you were born with, but the social strata of the earth. We want to boast about where we've come from and who we are now. And that's why he says what he says in verse 19. Then you will say, here's another anticipated statement, By these very people who are arrogant, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. 
it's, it's, what, it's what you've done. You broke off those branches to, to branch me in. He says, that's true. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But I tell you this, if you have that attitude, and if that attitude is so characteristic of your life that you could actually be characterized as a proud and arrogant person, then I warn you of this, just as they were broken off because of their unbelief, you better stand fast through faith And if you become proud, that is, proud and arrogant to a characteristic degree, if that is the unbroken pattern of your life, God's not going to spare you. You know what He's talking about here? False. False Gentile branches. And we have them all over the churches. False branches. People who are so deep-seated in their pride and their arrogance about where they've come from and the color of their skin and the cars they drive and the clothes they wear and the people they associate with, that even if Paul were to say, don't be arrogant, be humble, stand in awe, in their hearts they're saying, not so, not so, I am the man, I'm the man. And God can do what God wants to do, but once I'm in, I'm in. And if there's someone like that in this congregation, I say to you, you better stand in awe. You better stand in awe at the sovereign grace of the electing work of God in Jesus Christ. And don't be arrogant to the degree that ultimately you think you're in, but you stand before a holy God one day And he says, you're out. Because God says, if he doesn't spare those wicked, unbelieving Jewish branches who are themselves proud and arrogant because they're seeking to attain their own righteousness and they wouldn't submit to God's righteousness, so too there are proud, arrogant Gentile branches who think they're in and they think because they're Gentiles and they think they make up the majority of the church and they think they're the ones who are going to dictate who's in and who's out and who's in the in crowd and who's on the out crowd and who's a part of my clique and who's not... That characterizes your life. You better be very careful. Solemn warning. Stern judgment. If you have that kind of characteristic attitude, God's not going to spare you either. He's going to cut you off. He's going to cut you off. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. And then the note. Here's the note. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, Jew or Gentile, but God's kindness to you. Provided, provided, if you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you're going to be cut off. This is a sovereign, electing work of God. And He will crush all pride and all arrogance, whether it is Jew or Gentile.
There is no room, my friends, in the kingdom of God for unmitigated pride and arrogance. It's a solemn warning. Yes, of course, it is true that false branches of unbelieving Jews have been cut off from God's salvation olive tree. And yes, it is further true that they were broken off because of their wicked unbelief. But you who are the wild olive branches should solemnly beware that your arrogance, if it is such a magnitude that your unbelief causes you to be cut off and that you find out that you're really a false branch yourself, he says, I warn you. It's a sobering word here, my friends. It's a sobering warning for us, the Bible Church of Little Rock, that no one presume himself in pride and arrogance to be a part of the in crowd and that you look upon others with disdain. It's a sobering warning for anyone in this room as much as it was for any Jew or Gentile in Paul's day. If you think that the kindness of God's grace is such that after you think you've received it, you could actually boast about having received it, you're deceived. That's why Paul said to the Corinthians, if, if you've received something, why do you boast as though you hadn't received it? If you've earned it, if you think you're in by what you've done, then you're actually speaking against the grace of God. And God doesn't look kindly on those who speak against His grace. It's all of grace. The only possible response to the sheer mercy of God, especially as a Gentile, is to stand fast, He says, by or through faith. Cling to Christ. How could you be proud of what you didn't achieve for yourself? If you're so boastful and so arrogant that you would look down your nose at fellow believers who are Jewish, however different they may be than yourself, you're in danger of being cut off yourself from the kindness of God. Let me ask you, what would you rather have? The kindness or the severity of God? The kindness or the severity of God? Do you think that it was your own doing that you're in Christ? Do you suppose that it is your own believing that merited the kindness of God on your behalf? No, even the kindness of God leads to repentance. Do you see the arrogance of Someone around you presuming that they could earn God's favor and at the same moment thumbing their nose at others who appear to be under the severity of God's judgment. And there are people who do it. And we all know what it looks like. And we could all ourselves be battling it, but don't be characterized by it. Don't be characterized by it. Oh, pity so-and-so. They're in the place they're in. Oh, what a shame so-and-so was born that way. Oh, I can't believe that other people don't think like I do. Oh, it just is so amazing how people are just not clued in to the obvious right way of thinking from me. Arrogance and pride is a killer. Paul says, stand in awe, my fellow believers. Stand in awe. 
that you and I, regardless of our heritage, our race, our ethnicity, or whatever, that we are the recipients of God's kindness. And God's not going to spare you if you're arrogant or proud. Don't for one moment think that all of God's kindness toward you is because of you. It's His glory. His honor. Do you stand in humility and awe of what God has done in your life? I would say, I thank God for what He's done in spite of my background. In spite of my arrogance. In spite of my pride. There's utterly no reason to boast about anything, is there? There's no reason to boast in something other than the sheer mercy of God's grace. That's why Paul says, I boast in only one thing, the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. He says, I warn you, for those of you who think you're the recipients of the kindness of God, you could actually be the recipients of the severity of God. Especially as you compare yourself to others. Thirdly and finally, he talks about the inescapable reminders of God's power and plan. Listen quickly. Verse three, or verse 23, excuse me. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off, if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? And he goes right back to his theme. And he says, in addition to exposing you to God's attributes of kindness and severity, I want to introduce to you God's power and His plan. Inescapable reminders here of God's power and His plan. And he reminds this congregation in Rome that God, far from leaving the Jews hopelessly vexed as to their future, has both the power and the plan for the unbelief of Israel in a future time in which that unbelief will be overcome and they'll be grafted back into where they are naturally supposed to be according to God's sovereign plan, which is a luscious, fruit-bearing tree for the glory of God. He says, I tell you what, you Gentiles, even though I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, and even though I'm working as hard as I can so that I can see God save through me multitudes of Gentile people, and by that the provocation of some of the Jews themselves, even though there's a partial hardening going on with them, I recognize that, but I'm working so hard so that ultimately I will be a model and an example for you that there should be no spiritual arrogance and pride in the church between Jew and Gentile, so much so that even you Gentiles will rejoice that in a future day God's going to save all of Israel. Don't you think, he says, that God has the power? Even though these natural branches, they're broken off right now, don't you know that God has the power to take future natural branches and graft them back in? Don't you think he has the power to do that? And if you would, if you would understand his plan, that's what he's going to do. That's what he's going to do. And if you 
by nature are a wild olive tree. Wild olive tree was something that was unfruitful, unproductive. It was wild, wasn't growing, just needed to be cut off and burned. If you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and supernaturally, graciously, sovereignly grafted contrary to nature, it's like this productive, fruitful olive tree and God is cultivating it and he's growing it and he's nourishing it. And all of a sudden, even contrary to nature, he goes to this wild olive tree that's unproductive and unfruitful. And he takes some branches off of it called Gentiles and he makes them believers in Jesus Christ. And he pokes them in to the to the natural olive tree and he makes it, even though it's contrary to nature, grow He says, don't you believe that in God's power and plan that he can later take the natural branches and bring them and poke them into the wild olive branches or the the tree with the wild olive branches and all of them will grow together? Don't you see that God can do this? Of course he can. They'll be grafted back into their own olive tree. And then he gives us that last paragraph. That whenever the foot surgery allows me, I will show you an amazing paragraph, which is the crescendo of it all, that God in His power, His resurrection power and His plan will take a whole multitude of Gentile people, including these very people, up to our own day and even beyond us if the Lord continues to tarry. And He'll take multitudes of Gentile people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people far more than the stars can be counted in the sky and the sands of the sea can be counted. And He's going to take all of these Gentiles myriads and myriads and multitudes and multitudes. And then even far more than that, he's going to take all of these Jewish people and they're going to look on him whom they have pierced. And they're going to see that Jesus, like Paul saw on the Damascus road, really was the Messiah. And he's going to save these multitudes of Jewish people. And in the end, all we can say is forget about race. Look at what God has done. Look at what God is doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And when you see that, the issue of your ethnic background, your race, your pride of place just goes out the window. And you say what needs to be said. Praise God. Praise God. In fact, you see what Paul says himself. I'll let him have the last word. Verse 33, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. He looks at all of this and he sees that God has been pleased to reveal to him that there's a plan that includes all of these multitudes of Gentiles, even though they don't deserve it. And these multitudes of Jews who are natural branches who are going to be grafted back in, even though he knows they don't deserve it. And he says when he sees this huge olive tree growing with Gentile branches and Jewish branches, and he says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. 
He just, he just runs out of verbs. Just runs out of verbs. Runs out of nouns. Runs out of pronouns. He runs out of everything. For who has known the mind of the Lord? In other words, who can fathom this great mind? Who has been His counselor? Who sat down with the Lord and said, Lord, let me tell you what the plan is going to be. Infinite God has a plan that no finite mind can fathom. Who's given Him a gift that it might be repaid. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him, obviously, be glory forever. Amen. Let it be so. Let it be true. And if it is true with you, you're going to confess your arrogance right now. You're going to confess your pride. And you're going to say it's all of grace. Let's bow together. It's all of grace. Lord, thank you for letting me go over time so that I might deliver my heart. Thank you for the heart of Paul. Thank you for the depth of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God. We could never come up with this plan. Never. We could never be your counselor. We could never give you such a gift for which there's an expectation of repayment. You've given us a gift, a gift of Jesus Christ, for which we could never repay. We've got it all wrong, Lord. We've got it all reversed. How can we be proud? How can we be arrogant? How can we boast? How can I boast in my Jewishness? How can I boast in my ethnicity? How can I boast in my Gentile civilities? My sensibilities, my background, my money, my work, my ministry, my clothes, my car, my girl. How can I boast in anything? How can I boast in my looks? How can I boast in my articulateness? How can I boast in anything, Lord? My boast needs to be in You. Because Your ways are inscrutable. Your paths from being found out crush our pride. Through Your kindness crush our arrogance. Lord, show us that we have no reason for boasting. We confess to You that we are proud, arrogant. And we confess that Jesus Christ is our only hope. And we believe in Him now. And we repent. 
would you please forgive us? Lord, please forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen.